Today on Vulnerable is former actor and producer Bug Hall. You may remember Bug as Alfalfa and Steven Spielberg's The Little Rascals, amongst many other things. In this episode, Bug takes me on a journey detailing why he's chosen to leave Hollywood, take a vow of poverty, and live on a homestead in Michigan. I do want to give a warning that we do discuss sexual assault, destructive coping mechanisms, religion, exorcisms, and more. So it may be triggering, and we at Vulnerable encourage you to take care of yourself. I am grateful to Bug for being so open and honest about his journey, so I hope you enjoy this episode of Vulnerable. I'm Christy Carlson Romano, and this is the Vulnerable Podcast. Hey, Bug, what's up? Not much. How are you doing? Okay. So I am speaking to you from Austin, and you were just saying... Which is my, uh, it's in my home state, Texas. There you go. So you're you're from Fort Worth originally, right? That's right. Yeah. I'm uh I'm I'm wanting to go there to go see the um they do like a cattle a cattle yeah, the stockyards. A, yes, the stockyards. See I, mm-hmm. how much I have to learn. I've lived here for about 2 years. Okay. It's a definitely a different change of pace, but I think in the best way. Yeah. And you similarly have moved to Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And I would love to get into that and how happy and I'm assuming joyous your life is. It's crazy. I, I mean, I, you couldn't drag me off this farm at this point. And I, you I know, know, I didn't really know anything about farming. Literally nothing. I didn't grow yep. up on a farm. I didn't have any experiences with farms. Um, I just kind of took a swing at it. And we've got cows now and goats and ch- eighty chickens cool. and. Um, my kids just love it. And we spend all day together, right? Like that's the, that's the miracle of it is that they can just mm-hmm. come out with my daughter. She's four. And she says, daddy, I want to be a shepherd. So mm-hmm. I need to start coming and moving the cows with you so I can be a shepherd. Oh, that's very sweet. My, my husband had a similar thing happen. Uh, so my husband's a, a, a former Marine and uh, Iraq vet. And he, you know, has survival training, you know, skills. Yeah. He knows how to, you know, live off the land and whatnot, right? Yes. And yeah. he has been getting closer and closer to, I guess if you want to call it, the call, which is kind of like post-pandemic, I think, American dream of having your own land, not being dependent, you know, on sort of like the... <laughs> the moving widgets. All the moving widgets that we exactly. were so reliant on. You know, what's interesting. That was, that was always in my mind. Right. It was like yeah. a retirement plan it was like, get the property. And, you know, it was this big version of it. Yeah. And one day I realized that my kids were not going to get the benefit of that. Uh, if I waited, if I, if I, if I shot for the big plan, if I shot for the 500 acres with a river running through it, so to speak. Right. And I said, you know what, let's just do it how we can do it now. Okay. And and, and, and you don't regret it, and you don't regret oh, it. Like you couldn't drag you couldn't drag us out of here. It's, yeah. it's the happiest place in the world for us. There's just a lot of different types of folks here, which is interesting, you know. And what I've liked about it is that I've brought a neutrality to my life that I needed and did not have for a long time in growing up in Los Angeles. And yeah. Same. You know what I mean? And so I would love to chat. I, if at all, you know, anything ever feels like this is not something that you need to go into deeper detail, please just, I never try to push 
the envelope with anything, but I did watch recently a really great YouTube video of yours that kind of got me on the level of where you've been and also too in terms of your journey and sobriety, which by the way, I'm six years sober and (laughs) I joke, but it's kind of true in that like when I found out I was pregnant with my first daughter, I, I felt like it. It, that's when my sobriety really started and activated and I went to, you know, therapy and uh, really changed my life so much. And just, you know, she kind of saved my life in that way. Yeah. And so for so many reasons, you know, having having my children has been really such a blessing. So it's also really given me the gift of hindsight in a lot of different ways, which has brought me into advocacy work for child actors and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I have a growing call to help these kids, you know, that, you know, people might not understand the sort of three-dimensionality of how these kids are at risk and whatnot. So obviously I've been really, really enthusiastic to speak with you about, you know, some of your experience and whatever you're, you know, ready to share and, well, I'm I'm an open book, so you know I I, <laughs> I, I hide nothing anymore. I have this kind of new principle, this kind of zero compromise principle. Just say what you mean, uh, and fear not. You know. Yeah, I feel. You like- mentioned that there's this hindsight that happens with kids, right? And it's so true. Like uh, the the beauty of when my wife was pregnant, everybody kept saying, "You'll never know how much you can really love until you have kids." And, you know, I'm a very pragmatic kind of person. So I would have this, this thought in my head, like, oh, that's a sweet thing that people just say. And they've probably heard it so many times. So they just repeat it, you know. Okay, that's nice. But, you know, love is, is pretty well definable. And we've all had the experience. And then my daughter was born. And, she, you know, it was the first night that she was out in the world. And she was laying on my chest. And my wife was getting some sleep. Mm-hmm. And I stared at her for about eight hours. Just stared right? She's just mm-hmm. asleep. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, it's absolutely true. The, what mm-hmm. people kept saying, it's true because it's a completely, it's a completely new love that manifests, right? All of a sudden, it's not quantitatively different. It's not like more love. It's just a completely different thing. And it has the ability to just drastically change everything about you if you let it. Um, and uh, I've been on that journey myself. Dude, it baptizes you big time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I and by the way, I was raised Catholic and by no means am I going to say that I'm, I've been a good Catholic, but I've always prayed and I've always kept that in my heart, even though I've had mm-hmm. a really calm, I think it's been a complex journey for me and I find myself going back to church and, you know, recently the Hallow, this is not an ad by the way, but <laughs> the Hallow app. Um, I love asked, that one. Okay, I did a children's story on it and um oh. I was yeah, and I did I did Advent an ad for Advent with them and I was really touched, you know, to be a part of it and you know, I like that with my podcast it, it can be a safe space and and we can chat about our life experiences like I said in a three-dimensional way. Yeah. Sometimes with the way that the I feel like TMZ or whoever it is, right? Like they boil down so many complex issues, like as we've been growing up. And yes. I, I occasionally can get caught into 
the algorithms like clickbaitness and like all this stuff. Yeah. And that is and that is so much of I'm sure why like you being disconnected to some degree is so healthy and so meaningful. I I'm stuck in a little bit of a I would guess you would say purgatory, but it's it's much more holistic for me rather than being on the other side of that, which I could talk about to you in detail another time in terms of it sort of struggling with understanding, you know, my brand identity as a female in Hollywood and like all that stuff has, it takes a real toll. Yeah. It's something, it's something that, um, you know, I'm not an experientialist. I believe that things are definable and understandable, but there is a truth to the fact that some experiences cannot be fully understood outside of uh, the groups of people who have had those experiences or experiences very similarly. Sure. And, and the reality is, is being a child actor is unfathomable. And it's, and it's crazy that the great irony is people think they understand it because it's so public. Right. right? And so yes. the juxtaposition between people thinking they understand something so fully and the impossibility of them really understanding it is uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, and I, I, I try to be gentle with them uh, as much as I can. <laughs> we are a very small percentage of a very small percentage, right? Like Yes, but we're also kind of a brotherhood and a sisterhood. You know, even when I was running and gunning in Hollywood, as an adult, when I would meet other actors who I didn't even know of, but I found out they were child actors, there was always this kind of simpatico. There was always this this kind of connection and understood thing that was unspoken, right? I mean, it's it's a trauma bond is what it is. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's a trauma bond. You're right. It's exactly what it is. You nailed it. Yeah, and, and, and I think, like, the older I get, like, we're talking about the hindsight, the more I realize what that all is and, like, how yes. convenient it is, okay? And this is going to sound a little cray-cray, but it's not. How convenient it is that there's not any data that secures... A, like the knowledge of how the effects of this type of career in its in its most exploitive form or in its at, at its you know at its most exploitive way yeah. like how it how it really does meander into these people's lives as they grow up and and yeah. how it affects generations to come as well so so i i, I let's let's start at i guess somewhat of the beginning if you don't mind is that okay of course Okay, so obviously everybody knows you from the alfalfa moment in time. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I remember you saying you did a really great impression of an alfalfa. So that yeah. was partly why that all transpired. I went in and um, they were having this big open call because they wanted non-actors. That was like Spielberg's number one thing, non-actors. So they had this big open call in Dallas. It was like a four hour long wait. And I I had prepped for it and I had cut my rat's tail off. And mm -hmm. I even, they used to have like that black mousse you can dye your hair with. So I dyed my hair and hot ironed it up. Um, and I grew up watching The Little Rascals. And I went in after four hours of waiting and they said, can you say this? And can you say this? And can you say this? And, you know, I kind of did it in, in I wasn't sure if I was supposed to do it in my alfalfa voice yet. I didn't understand how auditions work, you know, so I just kind of said what they told me to say. And they very quickly said, okay, thank you. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. uh, and even at seven, there was like this, something that just kind of grabbed me. And I was like, that wasn't sufficient. Like that, this, that, that's not how this is supposed to go. Uh, and so I stopped. You can't say no to a seven-year-old, right? In hindsight, I see that now. And so I stopped and I said, can I sing you a song? 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They're looking at their watch, you know, wow, all right, go ahead. And so I start singing in my alfalfa voice that I had practiced. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. I started going into the whole the whole thing. And they just died and they called a bunch of people in. You know, and all of a sudden I was in there for an hour. Mm-hmm. And flash forward a couple months later, I'm in L.A. meeting Spielberg and Penelope Spires, and, you know, and the final audition for that, <clears throat> they flew everybody out to L.A. And there were two other kids uh, up for the alfalfa role. And one of them went in one time um, during a, like, six-hour-long mix-and-match process. One of them mm-hmm. went in one time, and the other one, they never even called him in. He sat, he sat in the mix-and-match waiting room the entire six hours. Mm. So it uh, it was just kind of meant to be, I suppose. Very meant to be. They probably should have just hired you <laughs> like down the spot. But, you know, I remember the kind of frenzy that happens with those moments in time as as we were children. Like, I, I, I think time slows down for yeah. you because your adrenaline is so high. And you know, even at that young age, that these stakes are adult stakes that you are now a part of. And it's not natural. It's not, it's not, there's no way of them being able to do that. That's not, in my opinion, traumatizing. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, it actually is, it it is a, uh, a form of trauma. I mean, that's, that's actually what, what forms being in any sort of waiting to perform type scenario, even if I perceive that and it's not real, I get an adrenaline dump. Yeah. I go into, you know, mild disassociative uh, yeah. experiences. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, that's what it is. That's what's built into us. Yeah. And it's funny because I've lived without any of that for, for quite a few years now being on the farm. Mm-hmm. And I had this funny experience just two days ago. Okay. Uh, I sold two of my cows and I, all of a sudden, I, my plan was to just always do my own butchering, but uh, we ran out of grass and I had to sell some cows. So I sell these okay. two cows. And I have to put them onto the um, the trailer. And I've never loaded cows onto a trailer. I have no idea how to get them onto this trailer. And I spent about 30 hours creating like mouse traps in this trailer, just putting all sorts of yummy things that they might want and then trying to catch them while they're in there and put the thing up. And so it was like 30 hours of just adrenaline dump. I mean, these are big animals and they can charge yeah. you, you know. Yeah. And I was living in this state of, well, just nervousness and, and adrenaline pumping through me. And it was like flashbacks. Um, when I finally got them into the trailer and had a minute to sit down, I had this, this moment of recognition where I was like, this is how I felt most of my life. Mm-hmm. This is how like pilot season, you know, doing the grind. Like this is how every day felt. Mm-hmm. Except I'm, you were the cow. <laughs> I was the cow being lured into the, into the trailer. And uh, I, all of a sudden it was, I had this, I had a strange experience because it was it was twofold, right? It was I, I, had, I was experiencing the emotions at the time, but I was also yeah. able to step out of them and go, "Man, I'm free of that. Like this is not that experience. This is just emotionally identical, but 
but I'm I'm free. I'm here in the in the open sky uh, on my own little farm with my family. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just a really nice moment of peace once I recognized that. Uh, but it is it's it's trauma. It's PTSD. Like you know, it, that's exactly what it is clinically. And there does need to be, I think, some work in um, in bringing that to the forefront and recognizing it and creating strong advocacy so that kids either learn how to cope with that. Now, I am I am of a different uh, mindset in regards to child actors and the. the the workings of Hollywood and what the right approach there is. But um, well, that's what, listen, that's what I'm here for. Honestly, this yeah. is a very candid conversation about it that I, I, you might be surprised in my, in, in the way that I feel about it too. I mean, I, yeah. I'm pretty, after having two daughters, I, I feel very strong about it. And I just went back into speaking with somebody and I, I listened to a really great book that anybody with trauma who might be listening today <laughs> should definitely look into. And it's called what happened to you. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. Okay. It's like Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry, and he's helped the FBI track down serial killers, um, because, you know, from interviewing children because they, you know, took their sibling while they were next to them, but they're so young that they, you know what I mean? Like right. this guy, this guy is amazing. And so I, I was told actually by a person who works for a program that I, at the moment, I'm endorsing this program and it's called the Looking Ahead program that SAG offers and is building out to be a national program that has social workers tied into anyone under 18 that's a part of SAG. And they're trying to build it out. And I think that sometimes- So so they would have mm -hmm. a permanent social worker that's designated to them throughout the the length of their childhood careers? Oh, well, that's what needs to happen. But they're understaffed yeah. and they're under and they're underserved, even though, like I said, there's so much money that goes through right. these little actors and how much money they make the networks and whatnot. So this man is um, a therapist who's uh, sort of like, I think, the the point person who I've been connecting with. And mm-hmm. then I've known them to have different programming every year where different kids of different age blocks will be together and then they'll do different activities with each other. And then there will be a social worker that's on call that the parents can come and talk to. Mm. The problem is though, that the children who are truly at risk, who have guardians who may be abusive, they're not going to be coming to the, to, you know what I'm saying? They're, you know, they're not going to be coming to the hands of the people that could very well, you know, take them away from their meal ticket or their, you know, yeah. So it's a tricky thing on what the reform has to look like without fully alienating a parent from the child. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want right. to, when you talk about this work, it's like you almost have to really know the shape of advocacy as a whole. Because if you do a misstep, then if somebody sort of is angry at you, then I'd rather separate myself from the movement than right. take away from it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's frustrating. No, no, it is. I mean, that's the, you know, the the whole idea of any kind of interventionist uh, help, right? Which all help is kind of interventionist. That's just the definition of help. The problem is any version of it has great risk of abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, you know, and we're a society now that that generally doesn't agree on principle, it's no longer, I don't think at least, that it's any longer a, a, a difference between application of principle. I think we've, we, we vary drastically on the principles themselves. And so that's a very hard hurdle to overcome because mm-hmm. you can suddenly get ideology 
planted on one side or the other, pitting parents against kids or intervening in a way that isn't actually helpful and removing kids from you know, the proper care of their parents. Now, all those sorts of things become problematic, right? Yeah. It's a scary uh, pond to wade into. But I will say back to the, the data is that mm. I do believe, though, no matter what is happening in terms of that complex conversation, which still needs to be had, and right. I think people like us coming out and talking about our transitions and our journeys, as different as they are, yeah. They are important because they are in and of themselves the data that has not been collected yet. Yes. And that's why I find it ironic that people are so interested in where we are now. Where is Bug Hall now? What is he doing now? Mm-hmm. And all that. So I know we could probably talk forever about this, and it's it's really great to connect with you on it. But why do child actors go crazy? Let's just let's just go there. Let's just <laughs> why do we go crazy? Or so they say crazy. Like what is what happened to you? Um, what honestly happened, though? Seriously, like, I know you said in, in your YouTube video that you were vulnerable. Yeah. I had already experienced abuse going into the industry. Got it. So that kind of left me in a, um, a particular position to be preyed upon more readily, right? By, you know, people who weren't just making mistakes, right? Because there's a lot of trauma that happens in the industry just from general mistakes, right? A misunderstanding of... The needs of kids and, you know, working them a certain way or uh, the, the anxiety of the audition process or whatever. Like, those are just honest mistakes that need to be fixed. Okay. I was preyed upon by predators, by, you know, genuine, genuinely malicious people who um, saw that I was, you know, uh, in a particularly vulnerable state, right? Which is a, a sixth sense that predators just have. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. But Bug, could you open up a little bit more about this? I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to pry, but no, these for the sake of the audience you might not have seen my video yet, for sure. Were these guardians? Were these like teachers? What what what's the deal? Uh, like, so oh as far as who they were, no, so so the abuse I'm referring to is uh, uh molestation, right? It's a yeah. abuse of a sexual nature. I have gone through IMDB, um, I have gone through old call sheets that I could find. I've really tried to pin down precisely who these people were. You, you more than anyone can understand this. Um, I don't know exactly how early you started, but at a young age, you know, you're thrown onto a set. You, you really have no idea what position anyone has. Mm-hmm. Like you know the hair and makeup and wardrobe people because they're fussing with your clothes. But like beyond that, you don't have the context of like you're a producer, you're this, you're a financier, you're you know. The vast majority of the people on set, you don't have the context of their position, who, who exactly okay, they are okay. in, in, in regards to the film. And then the, you know, the memory, the 30-year-old memory of a between 7 and 10-year-old is uh, greatly unreliable. Yeah. I've had quite a few people reach out and say, you know, why don't you come up with names? Why don't you, you know, do this? Um, I have a great a great terror in me when I, when I tried to pin that down that cause there's a, you know, a, a few faces here and there on IMDb that I kind of go, I think the problem is, can you imagine the horror of that false accusation? Right. Can you imagine if my memory doesn't serve me well and I am, uh, I'm wrong about any particular person. Right. Understood. And I'm not a hundred percent sure about, 
any of the inclinations that I've had looking through faces and names on IMDb through old projects. So because of my abuse, a very strange uh, experience that I had was as I got older and would learn to contextualize what happened. Sure. As I got older and understood exactly what it was that had been happening, I began to have this fear that that was going to be me too. And that was actually the worst damage that was done to me. I lived in terror. I couldn't be around kids, not because I had an inclination there, but because I was so afraid that people secretly knew what happened to me and thought that, that I must be one of those people too now, right? It, it was the worst part of the whole uh, recovery, if you will, was that. And that's prevented me because in any of those particular circumstances, if I'm wrong, that's something that you never recover from, right? Um, Understood. like that is something that you just couldn't recover from. So, so that's been, that's been the reason for it. And Bug, honestly, this is your life. These are things that happen to you. You don't owe anyone any process. Like this is how you are living your, your recovery process. And I'm so, I am so proud of you for that. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. you shouldn't ever have to name those names if you don't want to. Yeah. And I think just the work that you choose to do, even just like you're saying, by being a good father and protecting your daughters and your yeah. family, you know, like that, that in and of itself is part of the healing journey. I've, I've known a lot of people and some of the people I've known have been predators and they've ended their lives. Um, a lot of them do end mm -hmm. up ending their lives. And, you know, it is crazy to see that that cycle does tend to replicate. So I can understand yeah. in my whole heart, parent to parent, how how you were trying to, you know, like stop yourself from, yeah, like from that process, almost like that demon, like coming into your life. You know, I mean, and that is very much so how demons operate, right? Is mm -hmm. by planting a seed and getting you to fixate on it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't understand that process. All I knew was that that it was a, a shame that people, I, I felt this constant sense of shame that people would think that of me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know the exact mechanisms of, of how that promulgates through generations, right? Or, or how abused become abusers. I don't know the exact psychological process behind that. But I know that that great fear that I dwelled on, if you will, maybe prevented that. Right. I mean, I, all I know is that it was just a constant obsession that that people would think that of me. Of course. And so you worked quite a lot in the mm -hmm. industry. Like I, I was like, oh, yeah, bug alfalfa. But like, oh, and then, of course, Disney Channel, which you've worked for Disney Channel as well. And Lindsay Lohan. What was that like working with Lindsay? <laughs> Does anyone ever ask you? <laughs> you know, she in hindsight, she was young and impressionable. And um, yeah. Uh, like all young children who are given the run of of the world, right? You know, she was she was a little bratty. Um, oh yeah, and she was <laughs> not know, a fan. She, yeah, she was just trying to uh, find her way in this in this like free reign world that she lived in. Yep, uh, and that uh, that's a shame. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a big fan of discipline. I thank my I thank God for my stepfather, my stepfather who. Uh, he raised me from the time I was like two and he wouldn't have anything to do with Hollywood. Um, he wouldn't even come out to LA uh, when we would go out for pilot season until we moved there for a brief period of time. But, you know, when I was home, 
he was a disciplinarian. He, it was like, go get a job, a real job. You know, he, he would make me go get jobs at grocery stores. And, mm-hmm. you know, right. if I messed up, I got disciplined. I had to, mm-hmm. you know, mow our yard. I had to do all the, the normal things that young men are supposed to do coming up in the world. So your, so your stepfather, safe space, safe person? Not Absolutely. This, yeah. Not no, the no, person no. we're talking about. Okay, got no, it. Okay. My biological father, uh, different story. Okay, my got it. Father. Um, who, uh, he, he was with my mom from the time I was two. Um, but I would go, you know, go to the, the biological fathers on the weekends and things like mm-hmm. that. So, gotcha. 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 Um, got it. So yeah, my stepfather is a, is a great man. Really, really a great man. That's really awesome. And so you guys, is he still alive and are you close? We're, we're very close. Yeah. When I was in my rebellious phase and hated everybody in the world, it's cool to see the kind of courage it takes to be a good father. Um, because he could have looked forward to us being friends or us having a, a you know, a, a friendly type of a relationship. Mm-hmm. But he cared more about my uh, my character. He cared more about giving me as much goodness as he could. And he accepted the fact that I would ha- probably hate him for it. Um, and it is a, it is is the most amazingly courageous thing, especially for a stepfather, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, you know that he, all he wanted was to be friends. Like all he wanted was to be my buddy, um, but he sacrificed that um, for my, for my greater good. And now we're very, very close. Yeah. That's awesome. Interesting. My, my husband has a similar, a similar story. His, well, not exactly, but his biological father is very violent man. He's not in touch with, you know, his mom ended up remarrying. She had him at 17 and then she ended up remarrying and and his stepfather is extremely principled and good man to, you know, only woman he's ever been with, his mom kind of thing. And so it's like, he's been this wonderful stepfather to him and he is his father, you know, and he was, he was the same way. He was very strict with him and my husband rebelled and ended up having to join the Marines and go through that journey, you know? So let's talk about the rebellion part, you know, because everybody always talks about us, us, I say, you know, these child actor types, I guess you want to call us. The rebellion is a part of the recovery process in a way, if you yeah. look at it. Yeah, it is very it is very much so. It's a form of protection. Regardless of what extremes you know your trauma takes um, and the exact nature of it in the business, the reality is is you're afraid all the time. You're not you're not aware that you're afraid all the time, yeah. but you're living in a in a state of trauma. You're living in a state of fear. And at a certain point, you, I think everybody at a certain point grabs hold of that by becoming dangerous. And, and this is not particular to child actors, right? This is, this is not particular. You see this with other children of abuse, right? They end up mm-hmm. taking on these, uh, I, I always liken it to, um, you know, uh, venomous animals, Right, like the frog in the in in South America that's got the bright colors to to let everyone know they're dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's what childhood trauma does. You eventually go. I need to look dangerous. I need to be dangerous. I need to repel by my appearance alone. Right, by my behavior alone, I need to repel uh, whatever might want to harm me. I, by the way, I hundred percent did that. I started to go to acting class. 
My rebellion actually started a little bit later. My maturity was a little bit delayed. And so I, when I was like 21, uh, it might have started a little bit earlier than that, but with like drugs, well, not drugs, but alcohol and, you know. And so it was like partying in general, and it was just like so bad for me and my focus and my ambition, but I was just so unhappy and just not, you know, that whole experience of the auditioning and the grind and the this and the just horrible. But I guess when I was 21, I started idolizing Angelina Jolie. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to dye my hair black and I'm going to, you know, like wear tight fitted, you know, black t-shirts and I'm just going to get tattoos and I'm going to, you know, just do whatever she's doing and just Mm -hmm. be just like her. And so it is interesting how you start to almost wear this facade like this is this is very true. This very much happens. This might be why we see a lot of these child actors rebel and and do these crazy things. I did a movie with Brad Renfro when I was twelve. Yeah, and um, I had up to that point really just been been living that uh, kind of duck and dodge sense of fear without realizing it because it's you know it's normal to you, right? Like it is your stasis, so you don't have any context. Mm-hmm. And when I met Brad, I immediately just wanted to be him. Like nobody messed with Brad. Producers didn't tell Brad what to do. Nobody told Brad what to do. Nobody uh, could hurt Brad. He became the greatest, coolest, toughest, uh, safest person in the world to me. And he took me under his wing very much so. And we would go fishing and, you know, we would just go go run around and get into trouble together. And I just wanted to be like Brad. And I realized that, that whatever it is that he does protects him, you know, and this is subconscious, obviously, this is all hindsight that you have to kind of dig through and find those moments. But that was the exact moment for me. That was the switch that went off. And I dove into, you know, uh, tough, tough guy, motorcycle riding, you know, um, drinking, drugging, womanizing, mm-hmm. All the things that that um, Hollywood. <laughs> all the things, yeah. All all the things that are representative of uh, what our culture views as a tough person, masculine, tough right? Mm. Uh, masculine, yeah, masculine. Um, which is which is ironic because the the lack of discipline in in it all is the exact opposite of masculinity, right? A, a, yeah. a masculine man is a man who um, has disciplined himself and who has himself in check and who. Uh, is in control of himself. Yeah, absolutely. There's, yeah, there's the whole philosophy of like that divine feminine and divine masculine that's, that still exists. So Brad Renfro, and unfortunately, Brad, it did not end well with Brad, for Brad. And he, he, I remember him being a huge light that burnt out way too soon in life. So were you hanging around him when that all went down? And no, we had, you know, I was quite a few years younger than him. Yeah. So, you know, when we worked together, we were very, very close. And I now look back and see that he put in a, a great effort for his state in life and his maturity level to to kind of keep in contact with me, mm-hmm. you know, since I saw him as a big brother. Um, he definitely took some sense of responsibility in that and, and made sure to try to, you know, stay in touch here or there. But uh, we weren't really going to be running in the same circles. Um, mm-hmm. And so we fell out of touch. I found out, I found out like everyone else did, mm-hmm. except that I was coming out of a, a, a bad blackout hangover and turn the news on. And 
Yeah. And I uh, saw the news. It was uh, one of the hardest days uh, of my life. Even even not having been in close contact with him for a few years, it was it was still a, a tough one. It was a, well, this a bright light, like you said. That yeah. That I apologize if I um, uh, interrupt you. It is seemingly something that I do that people roast me for. So I'm trying to be a better listener. I do the same. <laughs> Um, And it's only natural since I don't have a co-host that the conversation Mm -hmm. goes back and forth. So those of you listening, please take note. Uh, There's also something that you just mentioned that we don't talk enough about, which is the displacement that happens inherent to child actors in their family. So when Mm -hmm. you go to work on a set, you are taken out of your, you know, typical nuclear family dynamic or whatever it is, which sometimes can be a lifesaver for some, like, you know, say Shia LaBeouf, who was my co-star in Even Stevens. In a lot of ways, him doing Even Stevens, like the set, as he's documented, was a safe space for him to get away from his dad, except yeah. that his his dad, who is his abuser, became his um, chaperone on set. So he had to see him. I had to see him. It was just not a good situation. But overall you know, it was a safer space for him to be there than home. And then, but in a lot of situations, these kids are moving from different states and they're leaving their family. Their siblings are, you know, my siblings lost their mom. Um, The father loses the wife, you know, and then you guys are this little team together, sort of alone and at risk and grouped up and trying to, you know, make it rich, I guess you want to call it. It, there is a displacement there. And then you as a child who's on set starts to create this false sense of family on a set. Yep. Absolutely. You collect father figures, you collect mother figures, you collect siblings, you become a collector. Um, and that was my experience very much. I mean, I used to, even before I was aware of all the brokenness of my psychology, I used to joke when I was 21 and in the, in the deepest darkness of my, of my life, I would joke that I'm a co- I'm a collector of fathers, right? Um, it's just what I it's what I did. Yeah, we have some dark humor, the child actors that aren't fully. Fun. Yeah, no, I, I, I talk for it all the time. They're like, with everything you've been through, with everything you experienced, how could you talk like that? And I go, I have to. I mean, I you know, I, the I can I can kind of make a joke about just about anything. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any horror. Uh, I keep most of that pu- uh, private, right? Because uh, it, it certainly bothers people. But um, humor is a gift, um, and humor humor can can see you through uh, quite a lot of darkness. Uh, so you've actually, like I said in the a bit ago, you were working. Like when I looked on your IMDb, I'm like, this guy has like not stopped. And yes. even from your YouTube video, you said, look, look, I just um, I broke my sobriety, and it's been on the news. And I'm six months sober. And so here's where I'm at. And I actually thought it was very mature of you to, and I'm not sure if that's the perfect word to use, but I thought it was, it was enlightened of you to do it in such an authentic way and to be like, this is who I am today. This is who I'm aiming to be. This is what I believe and all that stuff. Right. And you really did take the time to do it. It wasn't like in a green screen, like I have behind me now. It wasn't like produced. It felt very genuine to me as you do feel very genuine to me. So I do have a question for you. This is kind yeah. of crazy, and I probably know your answer already, but would you put your kids in the business? 
I wouldn't put myself in the business. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm retired. I I uh, I sold I sold my shares in my development company. I begged mm-hmm. Netflix to let me out of my uh, my show that I had just sold them. Oh wow! Yeah, I was under contract. I was producing the thing and writing it. I had just finished the last script on the development side, and there was still a year of production ahead. And um, I was, you know, I was on as an executive producer. It was my job. You were uh, like. Which- you were I, was of, I was in the middle of selling our Selena Gomez movie. Um, mm. Everyone thought I was crazy. And I just said, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. I did get a lot of questions though. Like, are you going to another project? Um, Cause you know, <laughs> that course. would be seriously problematic. Uh, and I was like, I'm done. Like you are <laughs> never going to see me again. I promise I'm done. Oh my God. I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> uh, it was, it was the, the most terrifying decision I think I've ever had to make. I mean, I, I didn't graduate high school, you know, I, I know nothing else of, uh, of the world. And, you know, and I, at that point I had known the business pretty integrally, right? I mean, I, I you know, with the development company and producing and writing and acting in things that I was producing, I mean, it was just, it's all I knew and I loved it, right? Like okay. this is the thing that a lot of people can sometimes miss, uh, in, in how I explain this. Like I didn't leave Hollywood cause I hate storytelling and I, I I hate movies and TV shows and you know story theory and and I, I loved that work with such a deep passion I could wax poetic about story theory um, for days you know um, it was a it was a sacrifice but it was a sacrifice for something greater um, a, a whole me right a, a me that's that's um, sort of reimagining what what a man of character can be, looking to other great examples and a little to my own imagination. I think the imagination can drive us in, in really good ways if we let it. Okay. Um, I, can, I can picture this, this old man uh, who's been on a farm for, you know, I don't know, 25 years and has raised kids there. And um, I can see the peace behind his eyes. And I, I, I can't see the peace behind the eyes of the guy that continues to work in Hollywood and try to raise kids and do all that. When I imagine that man, I, I don't, I don't see a, a man of great peace and tranquility. So this step away, let's, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous because I am, I am about five years of content creation and sponsored content and investment because I didn't do that when I, when I should have. And I actually did step away to go to college um, so I do have that, but at the same time, I have all the debt that comes from <laughs> mm. <laughs> from that as well. So in general, I'm a little delayed, but I want to get to where you are here. And it takes time. And also, like you said, it does take some sacrifice at some point to let that life go. So I know in your YouTube, you said that there was a final straw, but was that around the time that you stepped away and gave gave it up? Was it the final straw of that set or um, what was it? It was a, it was a two, it was a two step process, I guess. So, okay. you know, I had been running the company for a while, the development side of everything. And I was, I was more and more noticing contradictions in um, my beliefs between my beliefs and the application of my work and the, the, necessary widgets, if you will, of development and production in Hollywood. Um, and I, I, was, I couldn't reconcile that, but I thought I could. 
And so I sold my shares and I walked away and I thought, I actually went to Texas and I thought, I will just start a new company and I'll do like a local thing and just keep it small so I'm not drawn into all of the the mayhem that I was drawn right back into, right? Okay. Um, and so I was, I, that was my, my original idea was I, I can do a version of this that is reconcilable with my, my core beliefs. Deep down, I knew that wasn't true. Okay. I, I was deceiving myself into believing that was true because I didn't want to give it up. Okay. Can you, I'm trying to think if you could be more specific about it too, just in terms of yeah. like, what was it? The production elements? Was it like, what part of it could you just not take anymore? Yeah. So the, um, okay. So everything from the beginning of the development process, the, the standard business practices of uh, rights acquisitions, um, the, the moral conundrums of a, of a lot of that, the attachment process and working uh, side by side with people who you might need in order to sell a particular project, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time have very serious um, qualms with uh, their moral principles. Mm-hmm. And then going all the way up to the sales process partnership of distribution and film financing is seriously problematic as well. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of the whole thing. Okay. You know, that's why I've kind of come down pretty hard against the industry in in certain ways, not because I don't love it, but because I do love it. And I don't Mm -hmm. see a path. I don't currently see a path forward. Although, you know, right now things are decentralizing so quickly because of technology and because of, of all the various ways that people can crowdsource for projects and things like that. So I always tell people, I'm not very smart. I'm really not a very smart man. If you can figure out how to do the thing and maintain your, your core principles, maintain your beliefs, and to reconcile them with what it is what you want to do, please go do it. Mm-hmm. Because we need people reinventing the wheel here. Um, we're at the bottom and it's only up from there, right? So, like, we need that reinvented. I don't, I don't have the drive or the the interest to do it. I, I want to just, I want to just be with my kids. That's a young man's game. I'm not a young man anymore. Well, and a lot of young men in Hollywood are not ethical, and so it right. takes, yeah. And so I understand where you're at. So, so what year then did you go over to Michigan? Was it 2020 or okay. what was it? Yeah. So, so the the lack of reconciliation between my beliefs and my my practice. Mm-hmm. And the desperate cloud of hiding the fact that I was going to have to give up what I loved in order to mm-hmm. save myself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was the contradiction that sort of led to my, my, my relapse. Oh, I see. Okay. After yep. that relapse, my in-laws, uh, my wife's family, they're in uh, Ohio, right on the Michigan border. And so we decided to just go visit them. I didn't want to be in Texas. I had a deep sense of shame, a deserved sense mm-hmm. of shame. I mean... You know, I harmed my family. I harmed myself. I, I you know, and I just kind of wanted to hide. I joke with people that um, that was like right at the early days of um, the whole. I, w- I won't say anything that that we're not allowed to say, but the whole wearing things on your face because of illnesses. Um, and Massive. and I was okay. And I was in like you know I was in like I don't do that. I don't do that. And I joke. Well, you were in Texas, so right. So I didn't really have to. But the the day after the TMZ article, boy, I was double masked and 
Uh, I joke with my buddies. I was like, in a way, it's kind of a blessing because I'm yeah. so ashamed right now. Aww. I just want to hide. Right. And so yeah. I wore I wore that thing for a couple of weeks before I finally got over that and was like, okay. <laughs> but I'm growing my beard out. My beard will be my mask. I bought I bought the mask and I put it on and I was like, I'm hiding. I'm going to the grocery store. Yeah. So we we came up to uh Ohio to visit my wife's family and and we just kind of stayed. Um my wife got bit by a dog, um, which forced us to stay longer. Um, uh, cause she had to do some medical stuff because of uh, the dog bite and, and we just kind of ended up here and I didn't do Interesting. anything. Yeah. I didn't do anything for like four months. I just thought I wasted a lot of time scrolling around the internet. And I just was like, it was the first time in my life that I had no aspiration to do anything. There was no business plan in my mind. There was no story development in my mind. I had no thought about the future. I I was like half sulking and half decompressing, right? Wait, but did you do you did you already have the kids? Did you have We did, yeah. So okay, I kept, okay. Well and, and the the what sort of helped, you know, the dog bite scenario was was a lot worse than I'm kinda letting on. Um I basically It sounds bad. Like, I became like full time, like my wife couldn't breastfeed, she couldn't really get out she couldn't even walk for about a month. So I was like full time, you know, full time taking care of of the kids. So I really couldn't do anything anyway. Yeah. And, uh, I was talking to, uh, this is the wild part of the story, but it's just, it is what it is. Uh, I was talking to a priest friend of mine out in Milwaukee, who's the diocesan exorcist out there. Mm -hmm. Every diocese has an exorcist on call. That's, the, you mm -hmm. know, that's later. true. And, uh, so he's a friend of mine and, and, uh, we had been talking quite a bit and he's like, look, it's not a long drive. Why don't you come out and just hang out with me? Let's talk and figure out what's going on with you. Because I was like, I, I'm lost for the first time in my life. Like, I'm I'm so lost. Mm, hard time. Yeah. And I hadn't made the decision to, to quit. Like, I hadn't consciously thought I should quit the industry. I went out to visit him. And uh, when I got there, he was like, yeah, well, look, I, I got work still. So you can just stay with me, hang out with me during the day, during my work. You can assist in the exorcisms and just help me out. Um, now he thought, because the priest that converted me is an exorcist. So okay. he's, I think this priest thought that I had experience with exorcisms because I was so close with the other priest who was an exorcist. I think he just might've presumed, oh, you know what you're, in fact, he said that he was like, yeah, follow Bob's lead, but you know what you're doing. Don't, you know, I'll, I'll go. like, he was so casual about it. I was like, okay, cool. And, <laughs> and so it was three days of going from one exorcism to the next full time. Bug, bug. Yeah. Slow down. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So you were converted to Catholicism? Yeah. Or to yeah, ortho I'm, Orthodox? Or you're no, Roman I'm, I'm Catholic? A Catholic? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm You're a Catholic. Catholic. When, yeah. when was that exactly? When uh, that, was, that was what led me to start my company, the first company, my first development company, was Wait. I converted in 20, uh, 2013. Okay, got um, it. I was 2013. Okay. And uh, Easter of 2013. So, oh, um, okay, yeah. And I, I, I had done all the prep, and I had, I had been catechized, and I had been studying the faith, and it was a, I was very excited about it. I hadn't quite thought of the application. And remember, I'm a stupid man. Um, I had not thought through the application of the faith to my work, and I hadn't quite realized that suddenly everything was going to change overnight, and there were lots of jobs I just couldn't take. 
Um, I, yeah, I, there were lots of roles I couldn't accept. There were lots of things that were just so plainly a contradiction that I couldn't even lie to myself about, right? Um, yeah. That was problematic because I was not at a stage in my career where I, I could really pass on a whole lot. You know, I certainly was choosy occasionally, but I wasn't at that point where I could just go, you know, I'll just, I'll just wait and take the whatever offer I want, right? You know how it is. There's, I there's do. Different, there's different stages. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm, I'm screwed. I mean, that's like, you know, if, if I'm at a point where I'm passing up even 50% of the work that's offered to me, um, I'm not going to make it. So um, as your faith grew, it's kind of like your road started to pave itself away from Hollywood. And so you were like, yeah, this isn't. And then it just continued to grow. And then sort of like your ideals did not align with yeah, that. Yeah, I guess you could say the road got narrower and narrower, right? That's um, fine. The, the path the path kind of started narrowing before me. So I, I initially started my development company because I was like, well, if I can't take work because of moral conundrums, I'll create my yeah. own work. Right. Which was, you know, I mean, that was great. Uh, I loved running a development company with my friends and... You worked with, with David, right? David Henry? Yeah, we owned a company together. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience and I, I truly loved it. Yeah. But the, the road continued to narrow and, and I eventually nice. reached that point where I was like, this actually doesn't quite reconcile either. And that was I, partially, I think, because the faith, you know, I, I continued to grow in the faith, you know, going to mass every day and all that and mm -hmm. continuing to try and learn the moral principles. Uh, moral theology is a great love of mine, which I always tell people, if you don't want to drastically change your life, don't study moral theology. It is. It is mind opening to many different people in many different ways. <laughs> yeah. On yeah. 100%. Yes. That, that. Uh, the the final straw for me was the, that three days with that with that priest in Milwaukee. Yeah, well, let's get back to the exorcism. So you were in the room while exorcism were taking place. Yeah, um, how was that? What was that it like? Was, so I had heard I had heard stories for seven eight years from the priest that converted me. Um, okay. That's his full time job. He's a, a he's kind of a world renowned exorcist. He's like one mm -hmm. of the top guys. And so I had heard all the stories super casually, like shop talking. Well, you know, I was beating up on this one guy and he's telling me, when he says this one guy, he's talking about demons. Right? I'm beating up on this mm -hmm. one guy. And, you know, he just says, like, I just like heard all the stories and I accepted them fully as being true. But <laughs> since uh, the sense reality, right? Like until you experience something with your senses, something mm -hmm. really, really, uh, drastically outside the norm until you experience it with your senses. I don't think it's ever fully real to you. And sure, it's like ghosts. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Um, like, yeah, you can in your mind be like, yeah, ghosts are totally real, and then you see one, and you're like, ah, ghosts are real. <laughs> so that was like my. All of a sudden, it was it. I mean, it was legitimately like the movies. I mean, it was exactly like the stories I had heard, and exactly mm -hmm. like so many of the movies that I had seen. There were things that were very, very different than the movies. Obviously, the, the mm -hmm. priest's disposition in an exorcism is just drastically different than anything in a movie. There's no fear. There's no... The, the power imbalance between a priest in an exorcism and a demon, the power imbalance is so great. There is, there is no, like, sense of fear or trepidation. It's, it's more like witnessing a, a torture, right? Um, yeah, like it's very all interesting. The, all the control is on the side of the priest. On the side of the demons, it's exactly like the movies. I mean, the, the manifestation and the, the bodies contorting and the strange voices and Latin and Greek and different languages coming out of 
factory workers, right? Wow. You know, the vomit. The in Milwaukee? That's in Milwaukee. Yep. Wow. These places exist all over the world in every diocese. Um, we just don't, we don't typically hear about them. So what, what struck me the most, though, because even within three days, it was already kind of normalized. It was like a full-time thing for three days, and then I would sit at night and hang out with the priest and, you know, smoke cigars and talk. So by the last day, it was like, okay, bug, you're on vomit duty. Like, okay, you know, I've already seen like eight of these, you know, whatever. But what struck me was every single one had the exact same through line. And remember, I'm a story guy. So yeah, you are. value systems, the through line of a value system grabs me quickly in any, in any story. And this story, this three-day story that I was experiencing, the through line was this. The thing that upset the demons the most, because the, the job of an exorcist is to upset the demons and f until they're so uncomfortable that, that, they, that they want to leave and they want to give you the information they need to give you for them to be able to leave. Like that's the, oh, that's wow. the whole thing. It's a torture and interrogation process, right? Mm -hmm. And what drove them crazy the most in the whole rite of exorcism is designed to just make them uncomfortable. The, the, what got them every single time was when they were reminded that they were the primary means of this particular person's sanctification and that they were still now doing God's will perfectly, whether they wanted to or not. They could not get out of being within the purview of God's will. And that would hurt them so bad. And on the drive home, I just kept thinking about that. And I realized that that will be all of us someday. Someday, we will either see that we were part of God's will perfectly, and we will rejoice in that because we had spent our life uniting our will to God's will, or we will experience great torture by that knowledge because we will have spent our lives thinking we're doing our own will and trying to live outside of God's will and yet still have done it anyway, right? So it's a strange realization, but I suddenly realized I don't care about anything else. Mm -hmm. I don't care about anything in this world except for loving my family because that's always part of God. Like that's just so plainly part of God's will, right? So just sure. love my family the best I can and live for God alone and just let the chips fall where they may. I mean, I've been, I've been floating around for four months I might as well just keep floating and see what happens. And that was when I began the process of defining a vow of poverty and all of that. Um, what is what is exactly the vow of poverty? Because I mean, you do have, you do own, do you own your home or you? Yeah. Yeah. So you, it's, it's you, you do have an asset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, so uh, poverty is a principle and there are diff multiple applications of principles, right? Um, so, you know, very often in our modern context, when we think of poverty, we immediately think of like St. Francis of Assisi, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that would be something you would call total poverty. So that's the, the furthest extreme of the principle, furthest, furthest extreme application of the principle. Um, or like Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, right? But, you know, Mother Teresa owned property. She owned the hospitals and things like that, right? So, so hers wasn't even quite as extreme of an application as St. Francis. And then, I mean, you can go all the way to like St. Paul of Thebes, who literally lived in a cave with, lived in a cave naked, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, that, that he kind of one-upped St. Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. But we can never apply principles contrary to our state in life. And my state in life is that I'm a husband and a father of four 
beautiful little girls. And I have a sacred duty to care for them and to take, you know, to, to give, provide for them their, their needs, um, their emotional needs. Can I just things. say something? Yeah. So somebody once told me this, and I'm curious what you think. Um, I mean, they, they always say that it's like your karma to have girls as a girl dad, right. but, <laughs> but somebody else told me this. They said, God doesn't give you what you want. He gives you what you can handle. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard this, but yes. it, I have two girls, and of course that that is that is to me very interesting in you and ethics and everything yeah. you've been. Through. Yeah, no, I I have learned more about myself and have grown far greater than I think I ever could have having boys. My husband feels the same way. There was this young actress uh, on one of the movies that that I I produced. This is the the movie I produced with Selena Gomez, and she's she's a, a nice young lady, and you know she kind of knew my past and my history, you know, and um, and by that point I was already married and had a ba- a baby with another baby on the way, a girl, and we had just found out it was another girl. And this young actress, smart as a whip, by the way, smart young lady, she said to me, she said, "You bug hall are only going to have girls." You're going to have 10 girls because that's what you deserve. <laughs> and I remember at the time like laughing and being like, oh, boy, wouldn't that be ironic? Yeah, you're right. That's totally what I would deserve. Um, and now it's like it rings so much truer. I'm like, actually, it is. We, we sometimes forget that not that children are ever a, a punishment or a chastisement, but we forget that everything God gives us, including chastisements, are always what's best for us. Mm-hmm. He always gives us the absolute best possible circumstance for our growth. That's mm-hmm. the entire uh, uh, secret of the whole thing. And we can either reject that or we can accept it. Well, I love that you are accepting that in every way it feels like. And I'm sure that every day, even in y- your journey with sobriety, which to me as a person who deals with that, I feel like it's never, it's never it's never too far away, right? Like that demon that you were talking about in terms of exercising that it it can always come back and, Mm -hmm. and you do have to reconcile it for yourself and your commitment to your God every day. Right. And so I'm on that journey. I'm so glad that you are. And I do appreciate you being an open book and, you know, coming to the table and talking to me about everything. And hopefully I would love to chat with you either offline or in going forward with this advocacy work because yeah, we, like I said, we need that data. We need those stories. And I honestly could just keep talking to you about everything. And I'm, yeah. I'm very enthusiastic about what you've got going on. I mean, is there, is there any last message in terms of like where, where you would want people to kind of be able to understand you going forward? Or is, I mean, like, how would you want people to engage with you going forward? Um, or where can they find you otherwise? <laughs> I was gonna say. Well, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I still dabble on Twitter and Instagram and, and I, I always leave my, my messages open so people can reach out. You know, I have lots of people who want to argue and I, li- mm-hmm. I like to argue, you know, and sometimes we, we find common ground and I, I just like having experiences with people in general. As far as, you know, a, a last message, you know, one of the things that I've I've been the, I think the drum I've been banging the loudest um, for for a couple of years now, because because it was my own experience. This particular drum is not. It isn't necessary to have any religious persuasion of any kind to recognize it and to uh, accept 
the the great benefit of it, and that is just always, always, always tell the truth. Mm. I think there is nothing more transformative to to any person than the day they decide to always try their hardest to say precisely what they mean and to never say anything else. It's very hard. It's an easy, <laughs> easy concept to see plainly. Mm-hmm. And it's more transformative than just about anything you can possibly do. Because I have a lot of people that are like, oh, give me some self-help advice. What can I do? Should I start, you know, praying more or doing this or, you know, meditating? What, what What's the big secret to peace on earth? Um, and I, I genuinely believe that this, the, 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 the foundation of it is the truth. Um, because what happens, what happens to, to every person that, it, that chooses that uh, is that they start to see their own contradictions. They start to see their own, you'll start to, you'll try to say what you mean and realize you're not 100% sure of what you mean, or you actually mean something else and you're hiding it from yourself. Right? All of a sudden, the, the cobwebs in your own soul start to sort of shake out and you have no choice but to engage with them and to contend with that. So. That's very extremely helpful. So what you're saying is, is that when people attempt to say the truth, uh, even in their intent, they'll be able to evaluate what they truly know of themselves. And in doing so, they'll have a conversation with themselves or their higher power, their God, whoever. And so you could only wish that for people because that was partly your journey. And that's amazing. That's great. Thank you, Bug. Thank you for, thank you for coming on this vulnerable podcast and being yourself and being vulnerable. And thanks for having me. Vulnerable is hosted by me, Christy Carlson Romano, produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham and executive produced by Brendan Rooney. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham, and our video editor is Eduardo Gamba. Follow Vulnerable wherever you listen to podcasts so you can join me every week for a vulnerable conversation. And be sure to follow Vulnerable on Instagram and TikTok at The Vulnerable Podcast. And make sure to tune in to my YouTube to watch the video version. 